Hello everyone and welcome to Context. This program is brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed today do not necessarily represent those of the IHC or the NEH. My name is Joanna Bringhurst and joining us today is Dr. Ida Meftahi, an assistant professor of the Middle East specializing in the history of modern Iran with an emphasis on the intersections of politics, gender, and performance. She holds a PhD from the University of Toronto's Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations and has been a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at Pennsylvania State University, as well as visiting assistant professor of contemporary Iranian culture and society at the University of Maryland. She is currently at Boise State University. Her first book, Gender and Dance in Modern Iran, Biopolitics on Stage, received the Association for Iranian Studies prestigious Latifa Yarshatar Award for its original contribution to the field of Iranian women's studies. She is currently working on her second manuscript, tentatively titled Tulip Grove, Tehran, Urban Geopolitics, Gender, and Performative Culture in Modern Iran, which centers on Tehran's historic Lalezar Street and its surrounding vicinity between 1880 and 1960. So welcome, nice. Dr. Meftahi. How did you find your way to Boise after so many different places on your way here? Well, um... I, um, I actually graduated from um, Sharif University of, at Tehran, which was a technical university, a very prestigious one in software engineering. But at the same time, I was uh, uh, dancing most of the time, rehearsing dance. Um, and I'll tell the story in a little bit. Uh, so um, I became interested in dance performance and gradually started to ask questions about the history of dance. So um, I moved to Canada in 2000 and um, my biggest goal was to perform and to also find a way to study uh, the history of Iranian dance. So I uh, did my master's at uh, York University in Dance Studies um, in Toronto, uh, where I wrote a sort of a historical um, dissertation on dance. Uh, most of it was through you know, examination of periodicals. And then I continued my journey after that to um, University of Toronto's uh, Department of um, Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations, uh, where I did my PhD. I was also taking courses in performance and theater studies at University of Toronto. And um, so I did my MA, my PhD thesis there. And uh, then after that, I found a uh, postdoc position uh, at Pennsylvania uh, State University, uh, where I had a chance to uh, sort of um, um, 
focus on uh, preparing my uh, book manuscript. And then I found a job at University of Maryland. Um, there I taught uh, mainly courses on Iran, um, Iranian culture and society. Um, uh, so my courses were sort of, uh, you know, uh, ranged from sort of uh, modern history of Iran, which was more of political history. And then I taught Iranian cinema, I taught performance and popular culture. Um, and then after a few years, I found a job and landed a job at Boise State University's Department of History. So here I mostly um, focus on um, courses that are about the Middle East Islamic civilization. And then I also co teach courses on history of modern Iran. Again, my courses are uh, very diverse. I teach courses on cinema. I teach courses on gender studies. I even had a, a course on um, sort of performance history of the Middle East. And I also teach, uh, you know, history of modern Middle East. So it's from culture to politics. I do all of that. <laughs> and everything in between. Yes. So what was it about dance, dancing, that first captivated you, that you've made it your lifelong yes. study? Yes. So it's, a, it's an interesting story and pretty much uh, very unique. Um, I um, uh, sort of mostly grew up after uh, the Iranian revolution of 1979 uh, so dance was pretty much banned and most of the cultural stuff was very sort of uh, uh, strict in the first decade of, uh, you know, after the revolution. So um, I was a very shy um, girl and uh, my mother always took me to different classes to find sort of a way um, to uh, sort of boost my confidence and uh, among many things um, including painting basketball volleyball all of these things uh, she took me to uh, to the dance class of sort of an older um, ballet teacher uh, in Iran um, and she was an Armenian woman who had uh, who basically was a migrant from the Soviet Union. Uh, so I um, took classes with her, uh, sort of, I had, um, um, you know, uh, I learned uh, various sort of uh, uh, dances from Russia. I learned um, Azerbaijani dance, from, for instance, and uh, so I, um, for a dance that was called Shalakho, <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, surprisingly, at uh, age 12, I learned some ballroom dances. So sort of cha-cha, um, uh, waltz, and a couple of these dances. 
and even a dance that they called Mother Care. Um, and <laughs> so I was studying dance for a while with her, but uh, she was very strict and really didn't help uh, sort of boost my confidence. So I found another, um, I mean, my mom found uh, another dance teacher who was the sort of the student of uh, Madame Lazarian. And uh, so I stopped for a while and then my mom found this um, amazing woman, uh, uh, Farzane Kaboli, who is, who was um, sort of before revolution was Iran's sort of, uh, so Iranian dance companies, uh, uh, sort of national dance companies actually, um, um, and uh, she was with that company uh, for, um, I think, about like eight years at least um, as a lead dancer. Um, and um, she was very passionate about dancing. I mean, um, she was also an actress, so um, she had to really be careful about, you know, her dance classes. Uh, but regardless, it was a dance class for women, and then gradually we got opportunities for performance. So um, uh, during that time, uh, she really worked on uh, sort of uh, new pieces for me, um, so new choreographies for me that sort of uh, more... Uh, you know, uh, was more suitable for a shy person. So gradually I started uh, expressing myself through dance and uh, it sort of became the, you know, my biggest goal to become a performer. Uh, so I would um, rehearse like hours and hours uh, um, sort of the new choreographies and uh, when um, you know during the time that we were performing mostly in the Italian school in Tehran um, and we also had a performance in the Italian embassy in Tehran in late 1990s uh, sort of um, this became uh, an avenue for us to take it more seriously. Uh, the performances were for women only, and they were for a, sort of a charity uh, organization. But, uh, you know, just the name of my teacher um, and her past history as pretty much the star of Iranian national dance brought a lot of audiences. And uh, so we had, um, um, I think I was involved with three of them and gradually from having, you know, uh, one solo, I was in, you know, um, in 1999, I was involved in the sort of pretty much all group dances. Uh, they were mostly like folk dances from around Iran. Iran is very diverse culturally. And there are so many diverse folk dances. Um, then I had, I think, last perf last uh, you know concert I, I had at least three or four four solos, 
So I became sort of, you know, uh, one of her best students. Uh, you know, dancing is very competitive in a way. Um, and then I left to Canada. So at the same time that I was dancing, I was also doing a degree in computer engineering, as I said, but um, the, the technical school that I, you know, uh, studied in was uh, very strict, uh, very much male dominated. Uh, it's not like that anymore. Um, so instead the dancing world for me was a place to express my feelings um, and uh, so when I left Iran uh, the only goal that I had was to pursue dance and to pursue dance studies. That's a really remarkable story and you really are the first person to document the history of dance in Iran. Um, what was that process like and how is that different from what historians typically do? Yes, so I have to mention that, uh, that uh, um, before I started to do this, um, uh, Dr. Anthony Shea, um, who's a very sort of prominent dance scholar, um, had studied uh, dance, Iranian dance, you know, more of uh, more through ethnographic methods and more in diaspora. Uh, but uh, what I did, uh, I mean, first I benefited from uh, the fact that I was already connected to, you know, at least the genre of Iranian dance. Um, and um, through that, I was also connected to sort of a um, new uh, um, sort of genre uh, of theatrical dance, which is called rhythmic movement. So basically, um, the the title of dance is changed to rhythmic movements because uh, dances. I mean, there's always a stigma um, about dance in at least Muslim countries. So. Uh, this new theatrical dance in Iran, uh, a lot of the people who initiated that were people like my uh, own dance teacher. Uh, so pretty much after I left Iran, they got the ch a chance to stage, you know, these theatrical dances. The themes were mostly like mystical or even religious. Um, so in this genre, pretty much they stage even the study, the history of uh, like early history of Islam through dance or early uh, uh, or the history of Shiism even through dance. Obviously, the, you know, uh, the dancers are pretty much covered, you know, they're limited in uh, their movements, but they're still dancing. So, um because of that, I was also connected to that community. And um, so part of my work was ethnography, but uh, since uh, 
the work that I started and my MA was sort of a, a, a historical examination of uh, the press between 1930 to 1980. Um, that was mostly analysis of the history of dance through whatever that was uh, mentioned or uh, reported in the periodicals of pre-revolutionary time. So I had that background and I had the other sort of uh, background of being connected to the dance community in Iran. Uh, so what I did in my uh, PhD pretty much was a continuation, but in a more serious and analytical way of the periodicals, government documents, and um, again, that's the other side was um, ethnography. Um, so the uh, pretty much one of the most important aspects of my uh, PhD work was to also study cabaret dancing in pre-revolutionary Iran. So this was uh, the cabarets uh, or musical cafes emerged in Iran in uh, mostly in 1950s. And this became a place that, you know, um, this new uh, genre was developed. Uh, the audiences, especially in sort of the musical cafes that are called coffee in Persian, um, it was in a way uh, the audience were mostly men. Uh, they would drink alcohol. And so it was more of a restaurant, um, you know, bar with uh, women performing in them. So the, the early, basically earlier women who started dancing there were most of the time really needy women uh, who didn't have uh, dance training, um, uh, but there to, you know, climb the stage and uh, do such a thing in a, you know, ma Muslim majority country. So they were pretty much very brave also, but it was a good, um, sort of revenue for these performers. Um, so uh, the, the sort of when the, the Tehran's nightlife expanded, you would see more and more of these women who uh, perform um, in these settings and um, sort of um, in like parallel to that, uh, Iranian uh, commercial cinema which is called film Farsi was being developed. It was, this genre was very much inspired by Egyptian cinema and Indian cinema and to some extent Hollywood. But uh, one of the central themes um, in these genres uh, was, uh, you know, when the male hero would go to a cafe and, you know, get involved with the cafe dancer. Um, so this, the, always the story of the dancer was sort of a, uh, one of the sort of sub stories in the film narrative. Uh, so the depiction of cabaret dance became in cinema and on screen became something that was parallel to development of, uh, uh nightlife, mainly in Tehran. 
so the society also started responding to this genre because it it involved uh, many things, including what they perceived as nakedness, nudity, um, and even prostitution. So um, um, I studied both of them, the sort of the uh, lives of uh, these cabaret dancers and their depiction in Iranian cinema, and also the way they, in a way, uh, contributed to economically to Tehran's nightlife and to commercial cinema of Iran, but at the same time they were perceived as prostitutes. So um, documenting them was the most difficult work that I did in my MA thesis because um, when I was using the periodicals of diverse genres from those that were more about, you know, um, sort of arts and culture from a nationalist perception and those with sort of Islamist tendencies and those with Marxist tendencies. So each of them had uh, their own perception of performance. But when it came to uh, cabaret dancing, they all agreed that this is degeneration, this is uh, sort of, um, um, it's uh, linked to prostitution, it sort of deceived the youth uh, and uh, sort of uh, takes them out of the, you know, ordinary life to, you know, basically um, sort of to be provoked sexually, so it create they thought that it's creating a disorder in society. So because of all this, it you know pretty much whatever uh, that was in um, uh, sort of periodicals about them was very negative, and uh, sort of they created also a, sort of a myth. Uh, around the cabaret dancer, that this was a needy woman who was a runaway girl, um, who was, you know, sort of tricked by sort of a man to uh, come to Tehran, for instance, and uh, then she ended up in uh, sort of the red light district of Tehran, and then, you know, found an opportunity to go on stage and dance, but still um, they were involved with uh, the male audiences. So a lot of these things were also projected in the periodicals. So, um, and the same story was about the, the uh, sort of the character type of uh, dancer prostitute on screen. Uh, so sort of deconstructing this was really, really difficult. Uh, so I really needed to get connected to actual cabaret dancers. Um, so pretty much, you know, I could calculate that these people would be older and um, not very much visible in society because after the revolution, 
uh, cabarets were burnt down and also many cinemas that would show sort of popular cinema were also burnt down. So many of the, these women also denied their past um, in a way they wanted um, to uh, forget the, their own histories. Um, so finally, I was able to get connected to one woman um, who was really amazing. And then uh, she uh, also connected me to another lady who was older and she passed away really um, a few months after I interviewed her. So um, when I met them, you know, my whole worldview changed because I, as a dancer, also um, associated with high culture, I always had my own perception of these women. Uh, but then hearing their life, life stories uh, as not only cabaret dancers, but uh, sort of um, actors, like actors who did sort of improvised uh, comedy in La Lazar Street most of the time. And um, like the other parts of their lives was really interesting. It was really eye-opening. And then I was able to uh, sort of connect the dots um, of what was perceived publicly and their actual life. Um, then I was able to find another actress, actually two actresses um, in uh, Toronto. They were living in senior, senior houses in Toronto. And um, again, I was able to find another star of uh, sort of cabaret and also uh, films, uh, again, commercial cinema. Um, so one thing that all of them asked me to do was not to reveal their names, their actual names, uh, mainly because their families were concerned. So I can tell that uh, one of these uh, ladies, uh, her daughter was a, uh, was a cinema sort of actress, uh, pretty much famous in post-revolutionary Iran, in Iran. And the other had a very famous daughter singer, but all of them wanted to uh, sort of, they wanted to give me information because they were happy that someone cared about them. But at the same time, uh, they weren't comfortable even telling their kids that they did the interview. Uh, so I interviewed these ladies for, I think I recorded, especially the ones in Iran. I think I have at least 15 hours of recording with them. And, um, so that became really useful in analyzing their history. And then I was able to find, um, sort of government documents about the nightlife of Iran and also about prostitution. So the whole idea of prostitution for, uh, you know, cabaret dancers was sort of this convention 
in uh, Iranian Kabiris, and it's very similar to, um, uh, you know, the convention in uh, Egyptian Kabiris at that time in 1960s and 70s, was that um, when uh, uh, the dancers in the middle of their performance would come to, uh, you know, the space that women that uh, their male audiences were s sitting and they would just basically sort of um, make eye contacts with them and then after the performance um, these male audiences uh, some of them would want to drink with them and this was through the um, through the cabaret owner so this was pretty much uh, a hidden type of prostitution um, I mean this could be um, but the cabaret owner was the one who sort of uh, even sold tickets to these male audiences and then asked these asked the women uh, the performers to sit with these guys on their table and drink but this uh, sort of implied that after the show um, they would go out with these these men but most of the time because they had to drink with several of them there were fights <laughs> outside of the cabaret and it was so risky that many of them would carry cold weapons uh, so this was basically the type of uh, in a way uh, sort of secretive uh, prostitution in areas that were uh, that such um, sort of uh, conduct was uh, um, pretty much banned by the city police. I mean, um, red light district of Tehran, it was okay to do these things, but places like Lalazar, for instance, it was it had to, they had to in a way follow the rules of the city and the city police uh, so um, for that reason I was able to find uh, sort of the the cabaret dancers in the footnotes of a book about prostitution in Iran and um, also through that, I was able to analyze some of these, again, government documents about prostitutions, their limitations, um, and also the way that uh, cabaret dancers and um, sort of uh, what they call workers of the nightlife um, had to follow. For instance, as my interviews also mentioned, they had to take um, sort of uh, STD tests every six months to be able to get permission for their uh, performances. So it was a very complicated story, but I was really lucky uh, to connect to people who were who actually talked about these things. Um, so that was all my story about, you know, sort of studying this thing that was really untouched. I mean, even in 
in sort of historical narratives, even for the people who were writing about gender um, and sexual history of Iran, uh, still they had this perception that these women were not worthy of, uh, uh, you know, their study. Uh, there were a bunch of prostitutes, but not even prostitutes that uh, were considered, you know, legitimate enough. There were studies of, for instance, red bike district of Tehran, but not, not these people. So um, bringing their lives into history, uh, and you know, in addition to the other things, was really challenging, but. I think that was, that's really fulfilling. I mean, it made me change my perceptions about uh, sort of different people with different problems and also exciting stories. That's really interesting that you discovered this whole segment of Tehran that was being, of women that were being ignored when you are researching now, um, La Lazar Street, is it, are you finding a lot of more stories of people that have been under the radar and not brought into history, as you said? Um, yes. I mean, uh, one of the most interesting things about, you know, my previous research and especially being involved with these uh, cabaret women was that most of these things, most of these, for instance, dance genres were developed in theaters of Lalazar Street since, you know, early uh, 20th century. So there were sort of these more upper class audiences who would go to operettas about, you know, um, sort of uh, Iranian nationalism. Um, but they had performers in them, uh, sort of, uh, most of mostly from like emigres with non-Muslim background. So most of these things were actually developed in Lalazar Street. So I had a lot of background about uh, this area and its culture. But what I didn't know was that uh, most of these uh, you know, performances, they're happening in an area that's, you know, uh, mostly considered, uh, you know, a place for development of cosmopolitan culture of Iran. It's, Lalazar is also compared to Broadway or Champs-Élysées. Uh, it was called uh, Champs-Élysées of Tehran, uh, especially, you know, in uh, early 1900. Uh, but then I realized when I did more study and archival research that uh, because Lalazar Street was in a very strategic place in Tehran, it was uh, basically the neighboring street was the street that was called earlier the, the street of Euro European embassies. Um, so uh, when Lalazar was being developed um, since late 18, late 19th century, um, these streets are, were also being developed. So first, you know, I think French embassy 
moved there and then gradually the British Embassy uh, the, the sort of the legation of uh, Netherlands, Turkey, Austria, Germany all moved there and uh, many of the people who came to work in these embassies um, you know their families started uh, um, you know basically opening various types of shops for instance um, um, there were liquor stores they were gambling houses they were uh, drug stores uh, boutiques and uh, um, sort of uh, even um, uh, like uh, one hotel that was called Paris Hotel all of these started there and one major hotel that was started there that it's most of the time you know very present in Iranian sort of cultural memory is was called uh, Grand Hotel so um, this was a place that not only you know emigres uh, from you know Russian Empire or Soviet Union um, and also uh, the emigres who escaped sort of persecution in Ottoman Empire or Turkey, most many of them would come to this street and intermingle with, you know, these also uh, sort of foreigners who came for uh, for the embassies and also sort of upper class Iranians who had their own, let's say, print shops there. So in this venue this uh, in a way this was a hub for cosmopolitan cultural production sort of modernity and pretty much all the turning points of 20th century iran you can see that it was uh sort of uh, had an impact and a you know sort of very uh, clear reflection in this area and i have to say that uh, the parliament of iran and some of the major offices were also in the street so it was very very uh in a way um uh, an important urban um sort of hub for not only cultural development but for geopolitics so you can see this area uh, during the Iranian constitutional revolution when, uh, you know, the British or the Russians got involved. So, uh, you know, um, you would see people interacting with them or even, you know, um, taking refuge in these embassies. Then again, during World War, you can see that the famine that uh, after the, you know, Allies' occupation of Iran, uh, you know, happened around the country. People in this area also suffered uh, from famine, and there was there were bread riots there. Then uh, again, World War II, uh, sort of again, Allies' occupation of Iran. You would see. Uh, many clashes between sort of drunken ally soldiers with Iranians. There were even like abduction of women uh, or even rape. Uh, so you would see sort of the 
also the relationship of uh, Iranian government with these uh, sort of foreign embassies. Um, another really important turning point that exactly happened in this Lalazar district and you know its surrounding area was uh, the sort of Anglo-American coup d'etat of 1953. Um, I mean, many of the riots and demonstrations happened there. And for instance, during the constitution, uh, during the um, um, the coup, since a lot of the communist um, press um, had offices in this neighborhood, actually uh, sort of across from the Soviet embassy, um, during the, the coup, many of them were burnt down. So you would see a lot of these uh, sort of destructions uh, that came because of politics and even international politics have a direct impact in Lalazar Street. And as I said, like 1979 revolution, also you would see, you know, uh, places being burned down. So, um, so it's not just, you know, a place for culture or uh, sort of fashion or many of those things that are perceived to be, but also a place that you can, uh, in a way, um, study urban geopolitics, uh, you know, the fact that it was called, uh, uh, for instance, Champs-Élysées of Tehran, it was because the French culture was very much present um, in this neighborhood. Missionary schools, for instance, they were, uh, they were exactly French missionary schools in Lalazar Street. So it was French culture, French language, which was also lingua franca of Iran back then, um, all were present. Uh, so the fashion, for instance, the French fashion was very much around. Um, so it's, you know, whatever that was around the world that was uh, a practice that was fashionable around the world, you would see that happening there. Um, again, ballroom dancing of various types or um, uh, for instance, World War II, American soldiers would dance with Iranian women, which of course, you know, created a lot of um, sort of uh, uh, negative response in the society because it was a few years after uh, unveiling of women in 1937 by uh, Reza Shah. So uh, imagine that 19, from 1937, unveiling of women to 1941, <laughs> World War, <laughs> Iranian women would engage or, you know, dance in the arms of foreign soldiers. So exactly like the dance craze of 1940s was present in that area. So it's a fascinating place to... Uh, really study a lot of things. So it's a very complicated story again, um, and it needs needed me to 
really more than anything rely on um, sort of diplomatic documents. So I've done, uh, you know, archival work in, uh, in uh, at the National Archive, British National Archive, uh, which is a fascinating archive. Then I've done work in, um, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of archival uh, research at uh, the National Archive here, which is, again, very fascinating. Uh, that was uh, the National Archive was in Maryland, so it was very close to the university. Uh, and then, of course, um, a wide range of archives in Iran. And archives actually in Iran are very, very sort of uh, developed. You can uh, basically order documents and get it on a CD. Uh, this is not the case with the British or American archive. So there I have uh, worked in, and also I uh, sort of hired research assistants who had done a lot of work on uh, retrieving and also documenting and indexing these uh, uh, sort of archival sources. So there you can sort of, um, you know, sort of cross-examine um, the correspondences, let's say, between um, Iranian Ministry of uh, foreign affairs with the British legation or um, the, um, the American legation. These became, uh, the legations changed to embassies after uh, sort of the Tehran conference where uh, uh, Churchill, Stalin, and President Roosevelt met in in uh, pretty much Lalazar Street. <laughs> so um, you can see these uh, correspondences and you can see the real life of Iranians and you can see its reflection in these uh, sort of dip diplomatic uh, documents. And then you can see that uh, how each of these are uh, responding to each other. You can see that, for instance, uh, British legation knew that their, uh, you know, the behavior of their drunken soldiers are destructive. But then when responding to sort of Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, that wanted sort of justice for Iranian citizens, they would deny everything. But in documents, you can see that they actually knew what's happening, but they didn't want to take responsibility for sometimes financial reasons. So um, you describe your, these... yeah, you describe your work like you are a detective or an investigator exactly. more than uh, what we think of as a historian. Yes, and, and I love that. Okay. <laughs> I love that really. Um, uh, and again, this is, I mean, unlike my, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, sort of previous work on dance that was very much about sort of local uh, or national sort of sphere, sphere of Iran. This is much more uh, international. So it's connection between uh, sort of international relations and sort of uh, national politics and uh, cultural development. So, and actually everyday life of Iranians. Um, so it's kind of a also bottom, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, bottom up history as well. It's not about always, you know, how the government of Iran ruled people, but also about everyday life on streets and their the response of people to, you know, international politics or national politics. It sounds like students at Boise State are really lucky to have you and to be able to take one of your classes. Um, yes, I mean, um, I'm really excited for being here at Boise State. I mean, first of all, I found uh, Boise um, really a really amazing place. I mean, there's so many stereotypes about Idaho, but Boise is really fascinating. It's a clean city with really nice people and a lot of nature. Um, I feel that people are really down to earth here and very culture, uh, cultured. And I see the same thing in my students and also colleagues. Uh, most of the time, my students come to class with sort of an open mind to learn about an area that they don't know much about. So um, uh, they engage with the courses and they engage with the material and also with myself. And um, I think for them, I'm also sort of a, um, in a way, an unusual type of instructor. Um, but um, yeah, I, I really love being here. Are there things that you wish your students or maybe Americans in general understood better about Iran? Yes, I mean, um, about Iran, um, I'm pretty much, I mean, obviously I'm much more passionate about culture, uh, society, and also politics. So. Um, I want, uh, first of all, I, I ask my Iranians to, my uh, students to uh, pronounce Iran the right way and not Iran. <laughs> so, so step one, pronounce Pronunciation, I always say, like, repeat after me, it's Iran. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, to view Iran uh, also outside of or beyond international politics. I mean, even Iranian national politics is very much is very different than what people would view. Uh, so, uh, to understand the cultural history of Iran. Uh, the social history of Iran and also present, really. It's not about, all about history, like past, but also present. I mean, uh, as I talked about, you know, uh, sort of uh, the 
cosmopolitan culture of Iran, uh, you know, in early 20th century and or throughout 20th century, Iranian culture is very cosmopolitan. I mean, it's true that, you know, uh, whatever, we have all these uh, history of Persian Empire or, you know, Islamic conquest and, you know, uh, Iranians becoming Muslim and then development of Shiism versus um, sort of Sunnism. So um, all of them, all of these are there. But also there is this cosmopolitan culture. Uh, Iranians are very much aware of, let's say, American culture. They speak, speak English very well, um, thanks to satellite and internet. Um, and uh, Hollywood, they know very much about what's going on in United States or other parts of the world. Um, and they watch things and they learn from that that so um we see a uh, you know uh for instance post-revolutionary iranian cinema uh, that was supposed to die after you know that sort of uh, uh disruptive uh, uh conditions of 1979 revolution but we see sort of an organic uh national cinema that was developed in Iran that, uh, you know, it's very much connected to the world culture, but it's authentic. And you would see Iranian filmmakers receiving, you know, uh, international awards pretty much, you know, uh, you know, once in a while. Uh, and uh, that is very much sort of uh, really representative of, you know, uh, the diversity and also the open-mindedness of Iranians. And the other thing, the difference between public and private life. This is a very uh, sort of a, in a way, a very Iranian thing, but also a Middle Eastern Thing because you know because of Islamic regulations um, and even Islamic uh, sort of uh, social uh, rules um, there was always a difference between how people live their private lives with public lives so for instance especially with women historically uh, Inside the house was a safe space for them that they could live life, but outside they had to cover their uh, themselves and uh, had limited inter interaction with men. Um, of course, that has changed, um, and especially after revolution, you you would see much more presence of women outside the world, outside the houses, in workplace. Uh, in universities, even in whatever sport competitions and all that. But uh, the difference between private life and pro public life still exists. So that's another thing. I mean, um, in public, in, you know, Islamic countries, people may uh, uh, be limited 
but inside the houses, you know, there are parties and drinking and all that. <laughs> Ida, Dr. Maftahi, it's been so great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And we really appreciate and value the work that you do at Boise State. And we're lucky to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for the interview.